Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Man, I'm loving this weather. I love it. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Book of Ephesians chapter 4. Book of Ephesians. You know, oftentimes when we were uh, in different countries, uh, we would be asked to teach and sometimes we would feel like very, very inadequate. Um, Jeanette would feel inadequate, I would feel inadequate. But oftentimes what was coming out of their mouths and the questions that they asked were really, I would have to say, Sunday school questions in the sense that there are questions that were really basic to the faith, beginning to the faith. And sometimes the reason why there was this biblical illiteracy, the reason why a lot of churches were not strong and were not functioning rightly is because they didn't see how the church was supposed to operate. They didn't see how the church and its gifts were to operate separately, how the uh, body was uniquely gifted, like what we were talking about last time. But also, the administration. In other words, how do you do church? And that's the question we're going to be talking about today, is how do you do church? How does it operate? How do the gifts work? If you recall... Last time in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll read the whole passage, but we're only going to be looking at 11 to 13, but I'm going to read the whole passage for us to get the flow. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, you remember, and he gave, verse 11, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. To the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 14 we'll be talking about next week. But it says, As a result we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of every individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. This is a popular, this is a very well-known verse. But oftentimes, even as I was in India and when I was in the Philippines, a lot of pressures would go on the pastor. So much of the pressures would be on him such that he had to sometimes do uh, 200 to 300 visitations. We don't even use that kind of language anymore. Um, but the visitations were, or the pastor had to go to every single congregant's house by the time the year ended. And as the congregation grew bigger and bigger, the work grew more and more. And the measure of the pastor, and I've seen this both in Myanmar and in India, the measure of the pastor was not that he was feeding the sheep, not that he was teaching the scriptures. The measure of the pastor was how much can he get done and how many people he could visit. And what started to happen as the people started to put more and more pressure on the pastor, he had less and less time to study. Less and less time to preach and teach. And the sermons became weak. 
They lacked salt. They lacked power, life-changing power. And then they would complain about it. Do you see what, how that works? And they didn't know the congregation simply because of, by the word of God. They didn't know that they were shooting themselves in the foot. Why? Because ticking off the list of how many visitations is much easier than to say some kind of unquantifiable number. You know, you don't really measure. How much does my pastor pray? Can you measure that? You can't measure that, right? How much does he spend in time in the sermon and the study? You can't measure that. So what we need to do is we've got to take a look at how did God design it? What is the administration? What is the organization of the way a church ought to run? Are, do we have freedom in that? Should we just do it whatever way we want? This is the pastor, should, be, should he do whatever he desires? Or is there a prescribed way that the church ought to run for a healthy church? I believe that God has designed it here. And I think if we missed it, we're going to miss a strong, healthy, vibrant, Christ-sharing, gospel-centered church. So, this is in continuation of our point here, but the preaching point is God gave this passage to you so you would consistently exercise your spiritual gift in the local church for the glory of Christ. And what we said last time was to consistently exercise your spiritual gift in the local church for the glory of Christ, you have to understand three distinctives and how God has designed how gifts should work. This is how the healthy church works. It's when the body of Christ, every single believer, every single person who claims the name of Christ, gives their life up for service and love to the Savior in the local church. First, we saw in verses 7 through 10, if you remember, that Christ came and there was the imagery of him as a conquering king. And as he paraded through the city of where he had just conquered, or paraded through the city of his hometown, he would come back and he would display gifts and bring back captives that were his own people that were captive, and he brings back the captives of captives, if we remember that. And we recall that as Christ died on the cross in Calvary, he not only purchased our forgiveness, he not only purchased our redemption, he not only purchased our own very lives and forgiveness, but what he has done is he has given us spiritual gifts for the work of the ministry. Every single Christian. So the first point was, in verses 7 to 10, was to recognize clearly the uniqueness of your spiritual gift. Why? We talked about in length how Christ gifts how he gives, how he directs, how he guides you with a spiritual gift, the very purpose of your life in this universe. I think that's astounding. That when you come to know Christ and you understand how you are gifted and you walk in his word and you serve in the local church, you come to realize this is where I need to be. I know this. There is surety. There is assurance. Some of you guys have told me that. I know I'm supposed to be here. Without a doubt, I'm supposed to be your servant. But secondly, secondly, not only are you to recognize clearly the uniqueness of your spiritual gifts, but secondly, you have to train diligently. Train diligently to use your spiritual gifts. You have to train diligently. And this comes 
by way of other folks using their gifts in the body of Christ. How do you train? How do you get better? Does God desire for us to get better? Yes, he does. I think it is. A resounding yes. Notice that God gives us. We're not supposed to do this in a vacuum. You're not supposed to grow as a Christian in a vacuum by yourself as a Lone Ranger Christian. The only way that God has designed for you to grow is in the context of the local church where we are sharing our lives together, where we are participating in each other's lives. We are over each other's houses all the time where we share and we cry and we weep and we pray and we walk this pilgrim path together. And so the reason why I say train diligently is because there has to be some sort of discipline on your part. There has to be discipline for you to get better, to become sharper uh, for the glory of God. I'd much rather want to be a sharp axe or a sharp sword in the hands of God than to be a dull butter knife. Right? But what does he say? How does he, how does he train us? Well, he provides his provision. Notice in verse 11, here displays God's concern. When he saves people, when he saves Christians, and he brings them to the local congregation, he doesn't leave them in a fog of ambiguity. He gives certain people, certain men, certain gifts to allow us to grow to our fullest potential. You notice here, he says here, in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Paul is saying, I can't grow without you. You can't grow without me. When we operate together in the context of a local church, we all grow into maturity, into, the, into glorifying Christ together as we walk on this pilgrim path. So gives his concern. Notice he gave some. And this displays God's ability in knowing exactly what we need. And here's the remarkable thing. It could have been simply a download into our heads right, to grow the Christian life. It could have been simply you are infused with knowledge or infused with wisdom. But the economy of God, the way God has designed it, is that we would depend on each other as we depend on Christ. And here it is. What does he say? First, we're going to talk about established truth. Okay? Established truth. God desires for you to grow in established truth. What I want to talk about first is this two groupings. Okay? You have four types of men that is described here. Okay? You have the apostles. You have the prophets. You have the evangelists. And then the last one is the pastor teacher. And I'll tell you why I think that's just one person pastor teacher okay so the first group we're going to talk about and we're going to call them established truth and that is the apostles and the prophets the apostles and the prophets now we talked about this before but it it is serves us well to understand and to really get this firm in our hearts and minds why because god wants you to grow okay i know that angelo you've said that i desire to grow okay but how do you grow how do you Acquire this information. How do you acquire this knowledge? How do you acquire this training? That's what the equipping is talking about. Should I just go to uh, the world's view of leadership? No. 
Should I go to the world's view of how to change a, to a better, turn over a better leaf? No. God has given us the truth by which we would grow. And he has given, a, given us this truth by the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets. Many churches have this confused. In a general sense, the word apostle means delegate or messenger or envoy or representative or missionary or one sent forth with orders. But the way it's being discussed here, Paul says these are Jesus' apostles. These are Jesus' apostles. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Now, the technical definition of apostle has three elements, okay? Three elements. You guys can follow with me. So whenever someone says, I am an apostle, I've sent myself out, you will hear this all the time. And back home, we used to laugh all the time. There's the apostle uh, who, would, who would, he was a self-proclaimed apostle down the road from where our old church was, right? He would say, I'm an apostle. I hear this all the time, right? What happens is, here's, here's the difficulty. When someone says they're an apostle, it's kind of hard to tell them that they're wrong. Right? And what happens is a lot of manipulation occurs simply because folks don't understand what the word apostle means. Now, we're going to go through this word apostle and you'll never be confused ever again. Okay? Here's what the word apostle means in its technical definition. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, Luke writes this, right? The first account I composed, the first account was the book of Luke. Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit, here we go, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, when the Bible speaks about the technical definition of an apostle. This is how you know you can be sure. This is how you know you won't be swayed. You won't be swayed by the Benny Hins or the or the different or the uh, the the self-proclaimed prophets of today. Why? Here, the definition of the apostle. Notice he says here is what after he had. By the Holy Spirit given orders. So the first element of an apostle is that he is commissioned. Commissioned by Christ. Right? An element of an apostle is that he is commissioned. Secondly, he says here, to the apostles whom he had chosen. Second, an apostle is chosen by Christ. Okay? And lastly, lastly, the, the third element of a true apostle is that he witnessed the resurrected Christ. Okay? Notice he says here, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. So here, just so you are not confused, just so when folks say, Hey, I'm an apostle. I'm a self-proclaimed apostle. You can know Without a shadow of a doubt, that guy's wrong. No, you're wrong. You're not an apostle. 
when when someone comes uh, and says, you know, I, I'm an apostle sent by Christ. I was uh, I I I think I need to preach. One time, uh, uh, I was at a uh, college meeting, and this guy says, "I'm an apostle, and I I need to teach." I said, "No, you're not. You are not an apostle. Why? I'm not going to be swayed. Why? Because an apostle is what chosen. He is commissioned, and he has seen the resurrected Christ." Now, let's go back. Um, he talks about this second group in Ephesians chapter 4. Okay? In Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about this second group called the prophets. Okay? Now, prophets are those, and sometimes I think we, we cheapen the word what prophet means, okay? I remember I was watching documentaries on people's lives. I love to do that because I like to see if they've ever turned to Christ, if they never turned to Christ. But I was watching a, a documentary on Tupac Shakur. Why? Because I'm from Vallejo. What do you think, right? I was watching a documentary on Tupac Shakur. And uh, I think it was late at night. My wife and I were watching. Um, and, and the guy lived a debauched life, right? But he was gifted. But as I was watching it, his mom said, yeah, he was a poet. He was a, uh, he was a gifted lyricist, and he was a prophet. And I, and I, no, he's not. He's not a prophet. Because people think that they can say anytime someone is a leader and speaks against an establishment, they think that's a prophet. No, that's not what the Bible says is a prophet. Okay. Sorry. To burst your bubble, Tupac Shakur was not a prophet. Okay. A prophet is someone who receives and proclaims direct revelation from God that is authoritative to the whole church. Okay. A prophet is someone who receives and proclaims direct revelation from God that is authoritative for the whole church. It is not, this is not what prophecy is. Okay. Um, Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy and I were on a plane coming back from Kentucky. And this uh, mom and this daughter, they were going to go visit this uh, college out here. And, you know, Jeremy and I always want to share the gospel, share Christ with everyone. And I think the mom and the daughter, they were nervous, right? They were nervous because they were on the plane. And they said, come on, let's pray. And so they started praying, and Jeremy and I were looking. And as they're praying, you know, and she's done, and she goes, the mom says, you know what? We're going to be just fine. I had a vision that there were angels carrying the plane. <laughs> and I would say, by the authority of God, no, you didn't. Stop talking like that. The reason why is because prophecy is revelation direct from God that is authoritative for the whole church, not for your plane ride. Do you understand? God doesn't give prophecy for your plane ride. This happens all the time. I have a vision that you're going to get a job. I have a vision. It happened to my friend in India. They said, uh, his fiance, I think I told this story before, was sick with tuberculosis. The elder said, I have a vision. If she just stops taking her medication, she would be healed. 
she died. And then you know what they did? They blamed them for it. She didn't have enough faith. This can bring so much havoc in the life of a church. And this is why Paul says, when we talk about these things of growing in Christ, we have to talk about established truth. Established truth. This is what prophecy is. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and we will talk. You will see what prophecy really is. Okay. These are appointed men who have received and proclaimed direct revelation. 2 Peter. 2 Peter. Okay. In 2 Peter chapter 1. Now we're going to look at this. This is, this is amazing, okay? Because folks who claim they have modern day prophecy, okay, they say, this is, this is how it happens, and this is how it occurs, okay? And we have to speak clarity into their lives as Christians who believe the word of God. You have to, by God's grace, okay? But what starts to occur is folks will believe, uh, Brother Manny, is it possible for you to turn up the AC? Yeah, turn it on, yeah. A little warm. Are you guys warm? It's just me. I'm always hot. Don't prophesy, okay? All right. Now, what starts to occur, okay, is that um, a man or a woman or a child, they start to say that, look, I have prophecy. Now, you could talk about your Bible study and everything like that, but you know what? I really know what God is really thinking because I have a real connection. Um, and what ha starts to happen is you can't ever tell them anything different. One time we, we heard this one guy says, you know, uh, this one woman says, you know, I heard from God that I should leave my husband. No, you did not. You're lying and you're putting other words in your mouth. You're not putting God's words in your mouth. You're just desiring to, and what you're doing is you're changing the definition of prophecy so that you have the authority to do whatever you want. And yet God tells us not to do that. He says it here in Second, Second Peter chapter 1. Notice he says here, verse 16. This is an amazing text, okay? Just follow. He says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when he had made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such as utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Notice what, what is Peter talking about. He is talking about the transfiguration. He is talking about the highest experience spiritually that you could have, correct? He's saying, I have seen Christ. I even heard God. Have you heard God? I heard God's voice from heaven saying what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he says, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven. We were with him in the holy mountain. Now, now Peter is saying, we as the apostles, we heard him. We experienced this. And what Peter says here Verse 19 is a shift. 
If you follow along, he says here, so we have the prophetic word more. What does it say? More what? More sure to which you do well to pay attention. Now, Peter is now comparing. He is comparing this experience of seeing Jesus, experience of the transfiguration, experience of hearing God himself, and he says, no, have the prophetic word made more sure. And he's saying this, when I receive prophecy from God, and it was inscripturated in the Bible, and we place it in the Bible, and as we write it, this is more sure, more certain, more countable, you could bet your life on it, than my experience. It's a wonderful thing. And what, what he's saying is, he's speaking about what, what prophecy yields to. Prophecy yields to the word of God. Prophecy becomes, when it is inscripturated, the word of God. And so what Paul and what Peter is saying also, as they join together, is saying, look, what's in your word, what's in your Bibles, is more sure than your experiences. So I may have experiences. I remember I was discipling this guy in college, and he said there were demons who kept calling his answering machine and leaving messages. Right? He says, they're always calling me and leaving messages. I hope they don't bring my name up. Right? I didn't even discuss it with him. I just said, look, the Bible says his word is more sure. You could trust in it. Now, notice what he says in, in the verse. The prophetic word made more sure to which you pay attention as a lamp shining in dark places until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now, what is prophecy? What is it? Okay, And this is why we have to be very careful with our language. Okay, Prophecy is this. Know this. First of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of Owen's interpretation. Okay, stop. So what he's saying is this, that prophecy is not something you simply conjure up. It's not simply you putting your finger on your head and saying there are angels picking up the plane. It's not simply something where you just kind of think, oh, you're going to get that job. I already know. It is not any of that. It is not something that comes up out of man himself. What does it say? It says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Prophecy is our men who have been moved by the Holy Spirit, carried along, that's the word there, carried along by the Holy Spirit with his revelation that, here it is, is authoritative for the whole church. It is not for personal jobs. It is not for, oh, I've seen a vision. I'm going to get the closest parking spot at Costco. It is not for plane rides. It is not for any of that. It is for the sure and lasting word of God. Okay. It is established truth. Prophecy is certain in its claims. Prophecy is supernatural in its origin. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, we go back to Ephesians. Okay? 
Go back to Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, Why don't we turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Now you're going, we're going to see here how in the first four positions we see apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. The evangelists and pastor teachers are those which we still have today. The apostles and the prophets are those that we do not have today. And the reason why I say that, it's not an arbitrary cut. I say that because of what Scripture says it. Let me show you. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4. He says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before you in brief, by referring to this, that you read, understand my insight into the mystery. What's the mystery? That the Gentiles and the Jews can be into one church together. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. Here it is. Following. As it has now been revealed... To his holy apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. No, it doesn't say that. Waiting for you to watch. Okay, It doesn't say evangelists. It doesn't say pastor teachers. Why? Because the truth was not revealed. Um, direct revelation to the evangelists or to the pastor teachers. Only to apostles and the prophets. Look at here. Um, look at this section here. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. So then you no longer are strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household, having built on the foundation of what? The apostles and prophets, not pastors. Not evangelists. So who's making the cut? Paul is making the cut. He says for established truth, it is apostles apostles, and prophets. Notice, what does he do? He uses a metaphor. He uses the local church of Ephesus as a building. There are new people brought together, formed by God. The foundation are the apostles and prophets. God's household are the Christians who are coming in. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Notice what it says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Having been built on the foundation, past tense. Having been built on the foundation, which is the apostles and the prophets. Okay, It is a past tense, a past work. And notice he says here, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple. Now it says here, being fitted together, verse 21, present tense. Having been established, right? Past tense. Being built on present tense. What does that mean? The apostles and the prophets are already laid down. The foundation is laid down. Christ is the cornerstone. And as a cornerstone, we are all being carved to fit. It's an amazing metaphor. And in order for us to fit, we need our jagged edges smooth. And in order for us to fit with one another and fit unto Christ, all of us need to be carved. You need to be carved. I need to be carved. We need to be carved together. Right? 
And as he fits us, he's building us on the foundation that has already been laid by the apostles and prophets. Now, as we build and we build the building and we put windows and doors, you don't lay another foundation. The foundation is already built. Correct? You don't put a foundation on top. Why? Because it's already built. And so what Paul is saying here is, number one, we rest on the established truth of the apostles and prophets, but also we proclaim that truth. We proclaim that truth. Now we're going to talk about evangelists and pastors. Notice, the evangelists are those who bring good news. They're the gospelizers. They're the preacher of the gospel. They're the teacher of the gospel. Philip was an evangelist in Acts chapter 21. Paul tells Timothy to be sober in all things, to endure hardship, to do the work of an evangelist, to fulfill the ministry. So what is an evangelist? It is someone who constantly is absorbed in preaching and teaching the gospel, who desires to share the gospel, to bring the gospel, to let the gospel be known constantly. It is always on their heart. You might be an evangelist. How do you know you're an evangelist? That's all you want to talk about. You always want to get to Christ. You always want to get to the cross. You always want to get to now, where are you? You always want to get there. And that is how God has gifted you. So we want to help you become a better evangelist if that is you. Um, we pray that God would give us more evangelists. But then lastly, what does God do to prepare you? He gives you a pastor teacher. He gives you a pastor teacher. Now, it does not say, and some as pastors and some as teachers. You notice how the phrase says, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors. It does not say, and some as teachers. It says, and some as pastors and teachers, which we believe to be the pastor teacher. Pastor teacher is the better designation. The pastor and the teaching part shows two elements of the same side of the giftedness. Okay? The first portion is the pastor. Pastor, all that means, do you know, it's, sometimes we think the name pastor is a uh, high and lofty name. Pastor means shepherd. That's all it means in the Greek. Someone who takes care of sheep. It is supposed to signify the concern for the welfare, care, and love of the flock. Desires for the full care of the sheep in Christ. The shepherd, the pastor, anticipates danger. Guards from wolves. Speaks directly in the life of those he ministers to. You cannot lead rightly without love for the sheep. You have to love the sheep. You have to desire their welfare. Welfare. You have to desire to be there when they're in tears. You got to desire to be there. This has to be weighing on your heart. This is what a pastor is. And then there's the uh, second portion is the teacher, it is the instructor of truth. So, the reason why it's so connected is that the primary role of the pastor is feeding the sheep with the word of God. If you have a pastor, and as you evaluate and as you see churches, the pastor who loves his sheep 
is the pastor who applies the word of God to his people's lives. He only desires for them to grow. It is in their, it is in their hearts. The pastor gives the congregation a healthy diet of God's word. Explained and proclaimed to the glory of Christ. And I want to say to you guys. I praise and thank God for you. For your commitment. You have freed me up to pray and study. And I love to feed you. And I love to edify you. And I love to equip you. And from the beginning you've allowed me to give myself fully to the word of God. And I just tell you this from the bottom of my heart. My biggest burden in the church is always the edification and the equipping of the church. I desire Christians to be strong. I desire Christians when they are weak and tired to be rejuvenated in the word of God. And I like to direct them and go back out there. I cannot give words of edification that originate from myself. It won't cut it when times are hard. You need to hear God's word explained. You need to be fed weekly. You need to be thinking about the things of Christ. Speaking about the things of Christ. You need to be prepared by God's word. And I praise God for RBC's commitment for this. For what the scripture says is the proper functioning of the church. You free up your pastor to preach and teach. You allow him to study to preach and teach. A lot of folks say, it's funny, um, I, I did this to Steve because I didn't know. I said, Steve, what do you do with your week? I mean, you only work on Sunday. I was, I was just saying, he goes, well, you know, I play golf all week, and he's just going along and messing with me until I started to study, and I started to realize how long it actually takes to get a sermon that will actually feed to think and pray for souls so that they could come and hear it. So that folks would be encouraged and fed and strong. I would hate, and I know that the results are with God, but I do everything humanly possible that I can do, that you would leave here well fed, ready for the week. And that on Wednesdays when we get together, you're fed again, ready for the week. Why? It is discouraging out there. The world doesn't like what we teach. The world hates Christ. And you have to be strong and edified and equipped for it. And the best way I know how, the best way that God knows how, that He has outlined, is that the pastor teacher study to teach and preach. And for that I want to thank you. Because we are on a good foot, brothers and sisters. Now, it says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Now, for the equipping of the saints, the equipping means to make someone completely adequate, sufficient for something, ready, prepared. You don't, this is, this is what's really bad, okay? You would call it foolish if I had a calculus test. And I took it, and then I studied for it. You'd say, that's pretty stupid, Angelo. Oh, I don't know, right? You would say, why? Because you didn't prepare for it ahead of time. Brothers and sisters, 
Are you, are you following the logic? Very simple. We need to be equipped now. We need, you need to be built up right now. You need to take every, every opportunity you can to hear the word of God, to study the word of God. Why? Because when the test comes, it's too late. Do you understand? When it's time to serve, when it's time to trust in Christ, when it's time to depend on Christ, when it's time to share the gospel with someone, I didn't know the answer to that. Well, you weren't ready. What can you do to be ready? It's okay. God forgives you, but what will you do to be ready next time? Well, I think I need to equip myself. Good. Now, equipping is a process of adjustment that results in complete preparedness. Equipping, perfecting, making adequate. There is a goal that receiving, preaching, and teaching is to prepare you to serve. There is no such thing. Hear this, brothers and sisters. There is no such thing as a Christian who goes to church, who hears teaching and preaching, and does not serve in the local church. Notice it says here, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You are trained, you are learning, you are growing. What? What does it say? For the work of service. The very function of receiving teaching and preaching is to be built up prepared and matured. One preacher said it this way. You were not called and saved and you were not given a church and you were not given a pastor and you were not given leaders over you to hear the word of God so you could sit there. You were given the word of God so you can do what? The work of service and you could fulfill the calling of God on your life and you could fulfill the purpose by which God called you from eternity. Paul said it to Timothy, all scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So when we come together, as we are getting trained in hearing doc doctrine, we grow. How do you grow? How do you become equipped? How do you become ready to serve? You grow in doctrine. You grow in love for the Savior. You grow in love for the church. You grow in ministry skills. You get better. You grow in dependence on Christ. You grow in wisdom. That is the careful application of biblical knowledge to life. Then it says saints for the work of service. Now the word for work of service is simply the word where we get deacon. It's simply the word ministry. Now this is interesting, okay? Because the, the way the Bible puts it is that the evangelists and the pastor teachers are to proclaim the already established truth from the apostles and prophets. Why? So that you would do ministry. We always think, oh, you know, when pastors get together, how long have you been in the ministry? They always talk about ministry, ministry, ministry. My wife always says, all you guys talk about ministry, 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 ministry. That's what my wife says, right? Ministry, right? As if, as if ministry was some kind of, um, how do I say it? Some kind of lofty uh, profession that you yourself made up. No, the word ministry is the same word for deacon, is the same word for serving tables. Did you know that? 
It is a lowly, lowly service. And yet what God calls all of us is that as the pastor teacher proclaims the word of God, you would be encouraged and fed and you would do the ministry. A lot of uh, churches, sometimes I feel bad for some of my pastor friends. They talk to me and they'll say, you know, they want the pastor to do every single thing. They have this view like, well, you know, I go to church and I put money in the offering box and so he works for me. You work for me. You do what I say, right? And that's the mentality where the Bible doesn't even talk about that. My job description is right here. Teaching and preaching. Feeding the sheep, caring for the sheep. Your job description is right here. Doing the work of the ministry. Sharing the gospel. Finding what that gift is. Sharpening what that gift is, right? Becoming better at it. Excelling at it. Now, it says what? To the building up of the body of Christ. So the primary reason as to why you were given a gift and were trained to use it is in the context of the local church. You don't get to define how and when you want to use it. God has defined it, right? The body is not healthy when you're not committed to growing and serving. Now, here's the question. Are you committed to being equipped and encouraged by his word? Are you committed? Have you and your family just said, we are committed, this is it. We're going to do it. Are you committed, secondly, to a particular ministry in the church where I'm going to serve Christ? If not, you're not fulfilling your God-given role in the endeavor of the gospel. And in essence, you're hurting the church. By sitting on the bleachers, you're hurting the church. Verse 13, uh, and let me finish with this. It says, until we all attain, it says here, to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, he says there are three things here. Doctrinal unity to the unity of the faith. How do we become stronger together? We preach doctrine. Churches, Some churches don't believe this. They say doctrine divides. But Paul says, God says, doctrine brings together. That's so opposite. huh? So what does he say? You preach and teach doctrine so that we are like-minded. So that we hold the things of Christ precious together. Secondly, experiential relationship. Until we all attain that. What is that? Of the knowledge of the Son of God. That word there is, uh, is the experiential knowledge of, of God. Of Christ. That is, that we would all... Not only have the same system of doctrine together, but now we all are walking in relationship with Jesus himself. And then thirdly, spiritual maturity to a mature man that is the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. It's not enough to simply know the rudimentaries of the gospel. God would desire that you would be mature, grown, growing in the grace of knowledge of God. Train, train so that you could use your gift. Train, 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 train diligently. Be dedicated to God's word. Hear God's word. Love God's word. Train, give yourself to the body. Give yourself serving one another. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us this. Your word changes us, moves us. I pray, Father, you would cause us to be diligent, to love you, to desire you. Thank you that you have provided in Christ. Christ gave us gifts. Christ gave us teachers. Christ gave us avenues to serve. Christ gave us this church. Help us, God. Help us to serve you, to be diligent in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.